Now let's uh, turn to the uh, second passage we read in the book of the Revelation and chapter 12. And reading again at verse 12. Revelation 12, 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. So the heavens are to rejoice, but the earth is to be filled with a sense of woe. Now there's a, a great event underlying this text, and of course without it, the text doesn't really yield its sense to us. The event is so great that it affects the whole of heaven and indeed the whole of the earth. And it affects both heaven and earth so greatly, as we saw, that there's a twofold call issue. The first call to the heavens is to be filled with joy. Rejoice, O heavens, that is, those who dwell in these heavens. But the second call issue is to the earth and to the sea. And the call to them is well, it's effectively really a call uh, to tremble and to be on guard and that's because there is a woe coming upon the earth. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Now, of course, the, the first question that arises really is what is the great event? that is supposed to make the heavens rejoice, and it certainly does make the heavens rejoice, and is also supposed to give the earth a terrible sense of fear and apprehension. Now, I don't know if it does that. It should do that. It ought to do that. It's designed to do that. But what is that event? Well, if you read the verses closely and carefully, you'll discover that the great event is the casting out of Satan. That is an event that is designed and does produce joy in heaven and is designed, strangely enough, to bring a sense of woe and apprehension upon the earth. Now you would say in a sense, well surely the casting out of Satan should be a message of joy to the earth. Well maybe from one perspective it is, but not from the perspective from which John is writing. To us here upon the earth, there is a sense of woe because Satan has been cast out. Now this morning I want to look particularly with you at the effect of Satan's casting out on heaven and its inhabitants. And uh, tonight, God willing, the effect of that casting out on the earth and its inhabitants, of course, including yourself and myself. Well, then the event is the casting out of Satan, and you'll notice that it follows a war in verse 7. It's a war that breaks out in heaven, and 
we'll read concerning it that this war broke out in heaven. Michael, who was one of God's archangels, and his angels fought with the dragon, who is, of course, as we're told later, the devil. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, and here we're told, beyond doubt who he is, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, these verses lead us to uh, a spiritual and cosmic or universal warfare. It's one that we can't obviously see, although we see its consequences. In fact, few of us are aware that what happens in the world are actually a result of spiritual conflicts of this kind. The book of Daniel makes that plain. In connection with the rise and fall of empires, he tells us that there are cosmic powers fighting in connection with these risings and fallings. But there's a spiritual and unseen warfare going on all the time. And this war between the powers of good or the powers of God, the angels of God and the agencies of the evil one, it's it's a warfare that has a, a long origin. In fact, it goes right back to before the creation of the world. And if you know your Bible well, you'll be aware that the first conflict in heaven arose under the leadership of Satan, who at that time wasn't called Satan. His name wasn't the enemy or the adversary, which is what Satan means. His original description was Lucifer which describes him, of course, as a great and glorious creature of God. I don't think we would go wrong in assuming that uh, Satan or Lucifer was the most glorious angel that the Lord himself had created. But, of course, the Bible teaches, sadly and solemnly, and with terrible consequences for God's universe and ourselves, the Bible tells us that Satan fell from his original state. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us that his initial sin, his parent sin, was pride. That he thought something of himself that he should not, and he thought something of God that he should not. And it was that pride that led him to instigate a rebellion in heaven, a rebellion that took many of God's angels on side. There's something in the news these days, of course, of a rebellion within the state of Russia, or a potential rebellion. Well, this rebellion arose against God in heaven. It became the origin, of course, of all sin. And the result of that rebellion is that Satan and the intelligences that followed him were all cast out of heaven. That is Satan's first casting out. And it's the casting out that we normally think of when we think of Satan being cast out of heaven. It was a casting out that took place long before man, male and female, were created. 
It was the casting out of Satan that made it possible in that respect for Satan to be the tempter of both man and male. <coughs> but when he is cast out of heaven, way back then, before our creation, it's important to notice that he's cast out of heaven as a dwelling place. It doesn't mean he doesn't have access there. It doesn't mean that he's never seen there. It simply means that he doesn't dwell there. He has no dwelling place, and neither do any of the angels who follow him in God's own heaven. But since the creation, and all these things are important to fully understand what we're going to look at in a moment, but since the creation, the devil and his angels have an intense interest in the creation that God made. And especially the crowning point of that creation, which is you and me. Man, male and female, created in the image and likeness of God. Now that is something that Satan hates. Uh, he hates anything that carries the image or the likeness of God. And it's important for all of us to remember that. Um, Satan hates you today whether you are converted or unconverted. I mean, just because you're unconverted doesn't mean that Satan doesn't hate you. Of course he hates you. Even as an unconverted person today, you still carry some of the image of God. You have power to reason and to think. The capacity within you for a spiritual relationship with God is something that belongs to you as in the image of God and therefore Satan hates you. He wants your total and entire destruction just as he wants the total and entire destruction of every Christian person in here. Satan has no way of knowing whether I am a true Christian or whether you are a true Christian. No way at all. But the more the likeness to God, the more intent he is to destroy it. Because the greater damage he can make by destroying those who are in the greatest likeness to God. Hence the reason, of course, why he wanted so much to destroy Job in his generation. God said to him, have you seen my servant Job, that there is no one like him? Famously, of course, the devil said, yes, of course I've seen him. But take away the hedge that you've put around him and he'll curse you to your face. He's no different from anybody else. Skin for skin, Satan said. In other words, Job will give anybody else's skin to save his own skin because that's what people are like. So you make life tough for Job and he will curse you to the face. He's no different from anybody else. But since the fall... Satan considers the world to be his territory and the territory of his angels and he wishes to fight for it and he wishes to retain it. He is called the prince of this world and he would wish to see every last vestige of God's image taken away from the world. He wants to deface it just like he wanted to deface it in the life of Job. <coughs> but all this time, of course, as I mentioned earlier, God still has access to heaven. Sorry, Satan still has access to heaven. 
He has access to heaven to give an account to God of his going up and down on the face of the earth and going to and fro on it. And as well as doing that, he stands in the presence of God to accuse God's people. He is the accuser of the brethren. Now, as we'll see tonight, there are different ways in which he accomplishes that. He accuses you to me. He accuses me to you. He accuses you to yourself. He accuses me to myself. But in the Old Testament days, it is obvious before the cross, before the finished work of Christ, it is obvious that Christ, the devil had formal access into the presence of God to make accusations against the people of God. Just as he made concerning Job. After all, what is it but an accusation to say concerning that godly man, skin for skin, take away his hedge, and he will curse you to your face. We have another example in the book of Zechariah, where we see, or where Zechariah saw Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Now, this is a marvellous thing. Now, granted it's a vision, but the vision must be representing truth. And this truth is that Satan is there at the right hand of the high priest to oppose him. And then Jesus himself intervenes and says, The Lord himself rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not Joshua? Is he not a brand plucked from the fire? There are no doubt that people were despising God's high priest and perhaps the high priest was despising himself. But we read on that Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and then the word was given to take away his dirty garments and he is clothed with rich garments and a clean turban, a priestly turban on his head. And of course that is God vindicating his own messenger in the sight of Satan who is the accuser. My point simply for now is that Satan still, before the cross as it is, I mean before the cross he has access into the presence of God to accuse the Lord's people and he functions as the prince of this world, the God of this world blinding the minds of the nations who do not believe. And all the time, as I said, he sees the earth as is his, and he wants to deface it and destroy the work of God in it. And central to that, and here we're coming closer to the point at issue, but central to that is his plan to destroy the special child that he knows will be born into this world. And the child that he knows God has marked out to be the special means of saving a fallen world. Now Satan heard that promise about the special child on the very day it was given. You'll remember that after that fatal day, and I mean fatal literally, the day that took death into the world when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, the forbidden fruit, you'll remember that God himself intervened. You'll remember that God judged the serpent in their presence, who was, of course, the old serpent, that dragon. 
He judged the woman and he judged the man. But you remember that the very first promise of a deliverer, well, strange to say, it was actually given to the devil himself. He was told that the damage he had done would be to a huge extent reversed. And uh, in fact, this is implicit and not explicit in the promise, but in fact, not only would it be reversed, but man would be raised to an even greater status than God had given him originally, much to the devil's rage and disappointment. God said to the serpent that (coughs) the woman would give birth to a child, that that child would end up crushing his head. In the process, he said, you, the serpent, will bite his heel. Yes, but that heel will come down on your own head in death. So since that Garden of Eden, Satan has been waiting for the birth of that special child. Now, of course, he doesn't know the point at which that child is going to come. Uh, Let me put it this way to you. He has to use the scriptures as, as we did, or as we do and as people did. God was giving the scripture piece by piece, gradually unfolded, Genesis, <laughs> Exodus, and so on, the historical books, the prophets, until the time of the new covenant. So all he's got to work on is the original promise, as he waits for Eve to give birth. And as far as he's concerned, maybe one of these might be the Messiah. And it's no doubt that it's Satan, primarily, who motivates Cain to kill his brother Abel. That is Satan trying to destroy the seed. When Sarah was given a child of promise, Satan heard that promise. And he tries through Ishmael and Hagar to destroy Isaac, who was the single child of promise. We saw recently in the book of Exodus that Jochebed, the mother of Moses, is brought so low in the midst of a genocide to the point where she has to cast the child on the mercy of God and send him out into the darkness of the river Nile. That is the serpent spewing out his rage and his venom against God's people to destroy the deliverer. He had heard the promise that after 400 years, God had said to Abraham, in bondage, in a foreign nation, I will bring them out. And he knows. He knows and he discerns and he recognizes through the prayers of Jochebed and the life of her and her husband Amram that this is a child that is worth killing at birth and making every effort to kill at birth. So he waits for the birth of this man, child. And the more the Bible is written, the more the Bible understands it, the more that Satan understands it. And he understands it surprisingly well. We read, of course, and we sang Psalm 91 there, which isn't in itself an easy psalm. Um, but you remember from the New Testament that the devil quoted it to Christ, and that's quite a remarkable thing. It's still a remarkable thing to think that the devil can sometimes use the Bible to deceive people. 
He most certainly does. There are many people who are being deceived by the Bible because they're quite open to being deceived. If we're simple and honest in heart and transparent in life and deciding to please God to his glory, the Bible will not mislead us. But if we're trying to warp everything in life and in the Bible to suit our own agenda, lo and behold, you'll find verses in the Bible that will help you go along with the flow. No doubt about that. But the devil knows how to use Psalm 91. Now, we know that, but I don't know to what extent you realise how clever that is. It's exceptionally clever. There are many verses, of course, that apply to the Lord, but he understands that that one does. At this point, of course, the New Testament is not written. The Old Testament is all that he has to go on. But, of course, you'll remember that one of his temptations to Christ was to throw himself off the wing of the temple and effectively to prove that God loved him and cared for him. (laughs) Now, There are many times when it's easy to believe that God loves you. There are other times when it's not. Maybe if you or I were 40 days or 40 nights in a wilderness and you were hungry and we were experiencing the power of temptation and the power of evil spirits, which Mark tells us, were present where Christ was in the wilderness, not just the devil but the evil spirits. Maybe we too, being tired and exhausted and weary, may well wonder, Um, to what extent God's care was going to keep us and preserve us. You've been brought to situations like that. Well, Satan is trying to use that kind of situation. He says, why don't you just prove if God loves you? Have you ever been tempted to do that? To put yourself into an awkward situation, maybe defying God to get you out of it, or just say, (laughs) Lord, if you really care for me, then do this for me. And in so doing, tempt the Lord your God. To tempt him is to doubt his word. Well, throw yourself off the temple because, he says, and you know this, he would say to the Saviour as well as me, does the Bible not say concerning you, the Messiah, that he will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways? They will bear you up in your hands, in their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, we're surprised by several things. First of all, that Satan knows the Bible so well. He knows it from memory. How many people go to hell knowing the Bibles pretty well? How many people go to hell knowing the shorter catechisms from beginning to end? Maybe not many nowadays, because not many make the effort to learn it. But learning it and knowing it doesn't get you into the kingdom of heaven. I reckon the, the devil can quote the Bible from beginning to end. But here he just works on it from memory. We're also surprised that he's able to apply those verses in Psalm 91 to this specific man. That's a surprise. He's watching him and observing him. And he wants Christ to make the connection between Psalm 91 and himself. His own preservation in his own difficulties. We're also surprised that he's so clever... And I, I just double-checked this before I came out. These two verses that he quotes contain 14 Hebrew words. He leaves out two. He leaves out two. The Hebrew says that, if you, uh, that he has given his angels charge over you 
to keep you in all your ways. They will bear you up in your hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone. In the Hebrew, he leaves out the two words, in all your ways. That's clever. Because in all your ways is a reminder to Christ that he can only depend upon security if he walks as God has given him to walk. (coughs) He's got words to speak that God gave him to speak. He's got paths to walk in that God gave him to walk in. He mustn't deviate from the words. He mustn't deviate from the path. Satan leaves that out. Is that not clever? Is it not clever? Satan is many things, but we can't say he is not clever. And you be sure of that, me too. You're not dealing with a fool when you're dealing with Satan. This one who has uh, seven um, Ten crowns and set, seven heads and ten crowns. It's not a fool. There's power there. There's intelligence there. He's head of a vast army of evil spirits who were all cast out of heaven. And cast out of heaven before the creation, they own the earth. Intent on destroying God's word and especially. God's child. Now, of course, everything changes for him when we're told at the beginning of this chapter that a great sign appears in heaven. At last, here we have a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a garland of twelve stars on her head. She is with a child, she's expecting a child, and she cries out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now the woman here is the church of God, which is so often referred to in the Old Testament as a woman. There are two prominent women in the book of Revelation. You'll notice that there is a harlot. Uh, From chapter 12 onwards, you'll find a harlot. She's not a true bride, not a faithful bride. In fact, she is ecclesiastical. She is a church She mimics a church. She's like a church. But she rides the beast. She's in uh, league with the beast. She's doing the work of the beast. And she comes to destruction. But this woman is not a false church. She's not a harlot. She's a true church. And that's why she appears in her purity. We're told that she's clothed with the sun in verse 1. With the moon under her feet and a garland of twelve stars. That's the son, the, the woman, the church, in her purity and in her holiness. These words <coughs> remind us, friends, of Solomon. Uh, in the Song of Solomon, when he saw the church fair as the moon and clear as the sun. And the reason for that is because the glory of God is upon her. And the twelve stars represent the twelve tribes of Israel the saved people of God in mass that she wears as a crown. Paul speaks of the believers who are converted under his ministry as his crown and his joy and his glory. Well, this church has given birth to the twelve stars, uh, which represent the government of the church too, to Israel, then the twelve apostles, and so on under the new covenant. So she is a glorious church. But critically, she is with 
child. Now, of course, the children of the church are are one way of just speaking about every single Christian, man and woman. You know, it's it's the church in a sense that gives birth to you. That's the way God's appointed it. Uh, We have a tremendous example of that in Isaiah 66, where we're told that when the church began to travail with labour, before her pain had even become great, before it had hardly started, she gave birth. And we're told that her womb didn't actually close. She gave birth again, and she gave birth again, and she gave birth again, until Isaiah tells us a whole nation was born at once. Who has seen such a thing? Now that obviously is a time of revival. And it's the kind of time we pray for. And uh, maybe, I don't know, how earnestly we do pray for it, because there's no doubt that revival comes with persistent prayer for revival. When Sion travails, well, her breasts develop, her creatures are given food to give the people, and then they are born. That's why I think God enlivens the pulpits before there's birth to the people. It's interesting that Bishop Ryle uh, tells us that in the darkness of 18th century England, and he describes how thick the spiritual darkness was, he tells us that suddenly seven or eight very prominent evangelical pulpits began to appear in London. And it was through the proclamation of the word that children were born. In other words, the church's breasts were filled and then the church is born. There's a pattern to these things. Prayer and word and new births. Prayer and word and new births. It's what we should long for and pray for. All of us, a revival of prayer and of the proclamation of the word that we would see genuine new births, which can be very different to people joining a church. There's a million reasons why people want to join a church. But we want to see new births, people turned from darkness to light, born into Zion, and enrolled as citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. Here the church is a child. She's ready to give birth. But on this occasion, it's a special child. It's not a general new birth, but a single child. And that woman church finds a special fulfillment, of course, in Mary, who is especially God in herself. And she is found, same expression, with child, with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know, I'm just going to... To put this out there, because it's something you can think of yourself, but uh, people long ago used to wonder if there was a connection here between signs in the heavens and what happens upon the earth. There are many people who believe, and I don't think that this is at all far-fetched. In fact, I think there's very good reason for this. There are people who, who believe that the gospel itself may well be written in the stars. These ancient constellations that are the same in every nation, by the way, Every single nation seems to have the same representation, where you have Virgo as a virgin, you have Libra as the scales, you have Leo, the lion, which was always associated with the Jewish people. People have wondered, I mean, the constellation of Virgo, which is a virgin, has 12 visible stars in connection with her. If there was a a sign in the heavens when the sun and the moon were passing at the same time, which happens rarely, and it did happen around the time of Christ's birth, there may be a reference to that. The reason I say that is because you have the astronomers slash astrologers in Babylon who only had the prophecy of Daniel 
but who recognized in the heavens a phenomenon related to Leo, the tribe of Judah, that it was the time of the Messiah's birth. It doesn't at all surprise me. It would be no surprise to discover that God aligns what's in the heaven with these events on the earth. That's, that doesn't give excuse for astrology, which is a completely different matter altogether. Uh, but God can use these things. Why can't he write in the heavens what he's writing on the earth? Why can't he give a sign in, a he- in the heavens to confirm what's on the earth? So I don't rule that out of here at all. That it may be in that constellation there was a very sign that tied into this. That may be. But nonetheless, the real truth being told us here is that a virgin, a woman, is with child. And at last, the man-child is to be born. The man-child. Notice right away who's on the scene. Verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. He's got his own kingdoms, his own power, his own authority. Now, we know who he is from verse 9. If you just cast your eye down to verse 9, we're told that the dragon was cast out. That's taking us forward. That serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. So that's who we have suddenly on the scene. It's amazing on the one hand we're led to this woman with a child. Full of glory, the glory of the sun and the moon and the twelve stars. About to give birth to the man-child. Switch of scene. The dragon. The dragon. What does he do? We're told that he takes a third of the angels in verse 4. A third of the stars of heaven and throws them to the earth. Now these are his own legions, his own people. He brings them to the earth. I wonder if the word earth there would be better translated land. Because I've no doubt that where he's taking them is to the Holy Land. And to the woman who has just received this announcement from heaven. And you'll notice where he positions himself, this dragon, at the end of verse 4. After he takes a third of the stars with him, he stands in front of the woman who is ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it is born. Um, I wonder how he involved the serpent was actually or the dragon just to keep the, the figure here I wonder how involved he was um, in, the, in the refusal to give Mary and Joseph a place in Bethlehem when the doors were shut when there was no helper to be found no home no shelter the only place was the animal enclosure where she gave birth on her own we're told that she wrapped the child in swaddling clothes and she laid him in nature. I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to necessarily infer too much from that. But it always strikes me anyway as giving the impression that she was absolutely on the road. I mean, you'd have thought a woman giving birth, well, that Joseph would have done some of that, surely. But maybe for whatever reason he was just not there at the precise moment of her delivery. Um, it's through the woman that sin came into the world. 
And here it is through a woman that a saviour comes into the world. It's interesting too that Roman Catholic theology teaches, now you'll be conscious that there's a whole uh, nebulous system of doctrines around Mary which have to do with her sinlessness, her immaculate conception that she was born immaculate without sin, that she never saw death, that she was raised into heaven. There's a whole system of these things, none of course which are biblical, but part of part of that actually teaches that she felt no pain on the night she gave birth because she was sinless. And not only that, but her body remained the body of a virgin uh, until the point of her death. Now, I hope as as, as intelligent uh, Protestants, and by the way, intelligent Protestantism is dying. All you've got left is things like the Orange Order. Does, does anyone know what intelligent Protestantism in, is anymore? But an intelligent Protestant will say that that is both irrational and unbiblical. It's unspiritual. Mary most certainly felt pain. She felt pain. But the pain that she felt was a pain that was overcome with great joy. That a man child had been born into the world. The Lord refers to that in a general sense. But well, let's let's put the definite article in front of it. That the man child. She rejoiced that the man child had been born into the world. But the the Satan was around. Um, you get the sense reading the Gospels that Jerusalem was shrouded in darkness a lot of this time. <clears throat> Even um, secular right Josephus tells us that when the Romans conquered Jerusalem that they'd never come across such a demonic and God-forsaken place. Strange that Romans should say that, but that's how they found it. There's no doubt that there's a, a busyness of the devil's part which which is especially visible in the Holy Land. And if you're to take the, if you take the world, uh, take the world in all its darkness, there's a special busyness on the part of Satan. There's a special activity on the part of his evil spirits between the birth of Christ and his death. And it's all geared towards destroying him as a person, destroying his ministry destroying what he was meant to accomplish in this world because Satan knows that that's who's just been born. He knows that. And he's hunched down trying to destroy this child from the point of his birth. Now, friends, there's no moral or spiritual good in the devil. You know that yourself. You don't need me to tell you that there's no spiritual or moral good in the devil. But you know, you can't help but in some respect marvel at his zeal you can't but marvel at his dedication to his own task. Uh, does it not shame us? I mean, when, when Peter is telling us to be um, sober and vigilant because our adversary, the devil, goes around like a roaring lion, he says, seeking whom he may devour. I mean, we, we can't miss the implication there. Be sober and vigilant because he's vigilant. We can't call him sober. But he's most certainly vigilant. He's on his task. He's on the job. And he never lets up. And the powers of evil never let up. Sometimes you may find it as a Christian that there's a worldly person who puts you to shame. A person maybe who's not been converted but puts you to shame. They're in church more regularly than maybe you are. Maybe they're at a prayer meeting far more often than you are. 
Is it the case that the devil actually puts us to shame with his sheer vigilance in the spiritual warfare? Which he even knows he's going to lose. I'll come back tonight, to that tonight. But you can't but, in a certain sense, admire that. He's on the case all the time. And that, that demonic activity is so prevalent in the days of Christ, he can hardly move without encountering evil spirits. Now you may say, well, how come we don't see so much of that just now? Well, there's a simple reason for it. Once, once you understand what's going on here, you'll understand it. The simple reason is that these 30 years that the serpent had were the most important 30 years in the serpent's life. To destroy the one who was supposed to destroy himself. To destroy the one through whose destruction he would wreak the greatest damage on God's works. No wonder he was vigilant. The devil is out to mar, to face, to destroy and to kill. And he's lost none of that energy as, as we'll see tonight. But then you'll notice that John here just takes us on a quick detour he wants to come back to the dragon, but he first of all just fills in all that we need to know about the child and the woman. We read at the end of verse 4 that the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, of course, he wasn't successful. I suppose we could say at the time of his birth, his best shot was through Herod, who gave a decree that every child under two years of age in Bethlehem would be destroyed. That's the devil trying to destroy. That was his best shot at birth, but it didn't work. Now, let's bypass his death for the moment. I'm going to come back to his death in a second. Let's bypass the death, because John just briefly summarizes events by telling us in verse 5 that she bore a male child. Now, notice the emphasis on the Messiah. It's not just any child, but the male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, Psalm 2. This is the universal lordship of Christ. And her child was caught up. That's the word rapture, really, to be seized up. Caught up to God and his throne. There's an awful lot in that. It's just going through the life and ministry of Christ, his ascension to heaven, and he shares God's throne. You'll notice that. He is caught up to the very throne of God. Not a subordinate place, but the place where all power and heaven and earth is given to himself. Then a quick um, survey of the fate of the woman, who is of course the church. In verse 6, she flees into the wilderness. Obviously she's being persecuted. Well, so the church was in her early days, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there for 1,260 days, or a time, and times, and half a time, or three and a half years. Then, in verse 7, he comes back to his theme, back to the devil and to his warfare. War broke out in heaven. In other words, this verse 7 really ties in to verse 4. It has to do with the conflict on earth. While Christ is alive, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fighting. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. 
So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and the angels were cast out with him. Now this is a warfare. It's a bit like the warfare that went on before the creation. This time it's going on during the ministry of the Lord, and especially around the events of the Lord's death. <laughs> Satan sees the events surrounding the Lord's death to be of such great importance. And there's a warfare, spiritual warfare going on as Christ lives and as Christ is being crucified. Now this spiritual warfare um, is something that we don't have much access to. Remember when the Lord was in the upper room with his disciples? No, sorry, no. Uh, when he was leaving the Garden of Gethsemane uh, on the night in which he was betrayed, uh, the people who came to arrest him, Jesus said to them, This is your hour and the power of darkness. This is your hour. And he's talking to them there as evil people who are doing the will of Satan. And the Lord is effectively saying there's more than you involved in this. This is your hour, and it is the power of darkness. Um, there's a way in which he could speak of it as his own hour too. But paradoxically, it's going to be his own hour through it being their hour. The time of their opportunity to afflict him, and to buffet him, and to use every weapon in their hellish arsenal to get him to sin even in thought never mind in word and deed. I mean if the devil spent a lot of energy trying to get Job to curse God to his face do you not think he spent more in trying to get Christ to say a negative word about God in the midst of all his hellish torments on the cross that this is your hour and the power of darkness. The bulls of Bashan were to be unleashed. The roaring dragon was to be unleashed. The serpents of hell were to be unleashed. And the amazing thing is that this conflict involves the powers of good at the same time. Michael, an archangel of God, and the angels of God are fighting in a cosmic warfare. Now that, friends, may sometimes appear to be so above us and so difficult to understand. But let me take it down to a level at which we may begin to understand it. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel tells us that an angel who visited him spoke of a conflict between the powers that were governing the nations, the spiritual powers. You can read it for yourself in, in Daniel 10. I think there's a reference to it in Daniel 12 as well, but mainly in Daniel uh, 10, where you have angels of God who are being resisted by the powers of evil. Now, if you think that's difficult to understand, well, just take it into your own experience. Have you tried to do something where you felt the power of evil resisted you? Well, yes, I'm sure you did. I have felt it countless times where I've tried to put my hand to something good and I'm conscious of the power of evil resisting it. I was talking to a brother the other day about a... A fellow minister who's long since gone to his glory, who told me that there were times when he stood in the pulpit when he felt that Satan was just putting his hand on his mouth, more or less saying, be quiet, and pushing the words back down his throat. Well, the same is, it's, the same is not 
The same is true of more than us. There are, there are powers and principalities on our side who experience the same hostility from the powers of evil in a cosmic war that is raging above us. It's got consequences upon the earth. Like I said earlier, and like Daniel says in chapter 10, the, the rise of Persia, the fall of Persia, the rise of Greece and the fall of Greece, the rise of Rome and the fall of Rome are governed by the clash of powers and principalities in heaven. Do, do we appreciate these things? No, we seldom do. That evil kings and queens and ministers and prime ministers are governed by powers of darkness who use them and manipulate them. So nationally and internationally, this conflict has consequences. But so it does with yourself personally. I mean, I hinted at it there a minute ago. I'll tell you a verse that, like many verses, we know them well and we just don't take them in. I'll tell you one of the best examples of that. We quote this all the time, but we seldom think about the consequences of it. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now that's you and me as New Testament Christians, right? Put on the whole armor to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. If we did, well, we might win or lose. But this is a battle we're going to lose unless we learn how to equip ourselves. We wrestle against principalities, plural. Against powers, plural. Against the rulers of the darkness of this age, plural. Spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies. So, if you think of the angels, the intelligences of God fighting them. Well, if you find that hard to understand, well, are you not supposed to be fighting them yourself? Do you not sometimes feel them fighting you? You sometimes feel you taking the battle to themselves because, because we're supposed to take down the strongholds of Satan, but you sometimes find them taking the battle to you. And in that respect, it should be no more difficult to think of a cosmic warfare as to think of your warfare with that cosmic power. It's the same warfare, except on a higher scale. And that's the warfare that John sees here. And the result of that warfare is staggering because Michael and his angels prevail and Satan and his angels are cast out of heaven. Now that was the reading that we had at the beginning. You'll remember that Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. He's talking about the cross here. The word judgment means crisis in Greek. Uh, the word Greek is crisis, which means critical point at which there's a huge change. That's still how we use the word crisis. A critical point at which there's a huge change. What's the change? Well, he says this. I, if I'm lifted up, I'll start to draw all men to myself. And the prince of this world, he shall be cast out. Change of ownership. Change of rulership. Darkness out light in, ignorance out, gospel in, world shrouded in darkness, world suddenly seen in light. And that's why, first of all, there is joy in heaven. Let me say three things. Now you say, are these my three points? No, they're not my three points. In fact, I'm very nearly finished. But let me say, there are three reasons why this event is such joy in the kingdom of heaven.
The first reason is because, as Jesus said, it's the great turning point in world history. We sometimes bemoan the state of the world, and we have every reason to. But the world prior to the coming of Christ was a ruthless, awful, merciless, cruel place, wherever on earth you lived. The things that we think are cruel and harsh around us today was just chicken feed for these people. They thought nothing of stripping the skin off each other, impaling people on poles, men, women and children, committing mass genocide all over the place. Heartless, barbaric, leaving children out to die. I know we're getting, we're getting there. Hard, hard as it is to believe we're getting there unless there's an intervention. But the world was a ta- dark and barbaric and ignorant place. Ritual child sacrifices, all kinds of degradation and barbarity. But this is the turning point. You'll notice in verse 10 when Satan is cast out here that there's a loud voice in heaven. Now this is immediately following the cross effectively or following the ascension of Jesus. There's a loud voice in heaven saying, No, salvation, strength, the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast out. Notice this is not the casting out of heaven that took place long ago before the creation. This is the casting out that took place on the cross. He has been dislodged as the prince of this world. The strength and the authority and the kingdom of Christ have come. The second great change that they welcome in heaven is that at last salvation accomplished. There's no getting away from the fact that every sinner saved in heaven before the death of Christ is in heaven provisionally. In heaven provisionally. In what sense? Well, the sacrifice hasn't been offered. Now I know you can say, well, it's as good as offered because God's going to make sure it's offered. And I'll say, absolutely so. Hence the reason they can be glad in heaven anyway but the fact is it's still provisional not until this blood is shed is that ratified and that deed done not until the son of God takes our nature and dies in our nature and seals the new covenant not till then is the the great sacrifice once for all offered which takes away the sins of the world including the sins of the people who are anticipating the event in glory like Abraham, like Moses, like David. All these people who look down aware that sacrifices are still being offered. At last, who comes into glory? The Son of God. He comes with wounds in his hands. He comes as the Lord of glory, as the one who has been great in might and battle, and who has offered himself as sacrifice for sinners. Rejoice, O heaven! Because your king has entered. And along with that, you will no more be aware that the accuser of you and your brethren is coming in and out of heaven, making accusations, as we're told, day and night before God. We're told at verse 10, the end of verse 10, (coughs) the accuser of our brethren, now listen to this, who accused them, before God. Now this is not me, him accusing you to me or accusing me to you. He's accusing them to God day and night. 
he's at last been cast down. That, that stopped. No more doing that. Can't do that. Because part of his fate is that he has no access whatsoever to the throne room of God anymore and his ministry now is confined to the earth in a special way. In a special way. In a terrible way. Because he comes down to the earth after Christ's resurrection having great wrath. Woe to you, woe to me. We'll see what that means, God willing, tonight. Let us pray. O Lord, O God, we pray to remember that mighty as our foe is, he is nonetheless defeated. And as the scriptures so wonderfully remind us, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And we are often afraid, and rightly so, of the power that he wields, but that power is not greater than the blood of Christ. It is not greater than the blood of Christ. It is not greater than the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts and who enables us to come. Uh, release, we pray, souls from his dominion. Even today in our gathering there may be some who are still under his sway and under his influence. Release them into the glorious liberty and into the glorious power of the sons and daughters of God. In the precious name of Christ, our Saviour, we pray. Amen. Our last is singing. I can't find my son. What was it? Psalm 118. Psalm 118 at verse 15. In dwellings of the righteous is heard the melody of joy and health. Can you not even think of that as being true in heaven with the resurrection and ascension of Christ? Because the Lord's right hand, which raised him from the dead, doth ever value. The right hand of the mighty Lord, exalted, is on high. And in verse 19, the gates of righteousness are open to us. Let's uh, sing 15 to 19, standing to sing to God's praise. <coughs> And
Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.